When someone from an area of sparse population first comes to a city, like me when I moved from Posey County to Chicago, they're struck by how strangers fail to notice one another. When you live in the country, you see so few other people that you can, without a great deal of effort, greet them all. On a country road, we'd even say hi to an oncoming car by lifting one finger off our steering wheel to sort of wave hello to the other driver, or at least indicate that we were aware of and honoring their existence as a fellow human. But in cities, the sheer quantity of other people makes this impossible. And so, to get along with one another, we practice something urban planners have a term for. It's called civil inattention. And here's how it goes. If we're in public, say in a park or open space, the polite thing to do is more or less to pretend we don't see one another. We share the space by pretending that I'm invisible and that you're invisible. We stay a certain distance apart from each other. We don't wave or attract the other person's attention. We certainly don't go over and introduce ourselves and shake hands. And that's not even a pandemic thing. That's an all the time thing. Civil inattention makes city life possible. It indicates respect, and it indicates recognition of the valid claim another person has on the same public space that you're inhabiting. But of course, like everything in city life, and really just life in general, it's all a bit more complicated than that. Today I'm going to be talking to someone who spent a lot of time thinking about visibility and invisibility and the quiet power and sense of calm that resides in sometimes being unseen. Hi, I'm Akiko Bush, and I'm a writer, and more often than not, I find myself writing about the natural world. So the title of your recent book is How to Disappear, Notes on Invisibility in a Time of Transparency. Tell me, why do we need to know how to disappear? Well, we all live to see and to be seen. We know this being seen, being recognized, uh, having the human gauge, those are vital to human connection. Um, those are vital to the way we, we relate to one another. Social visibility is vital to our well-being. And the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement, these both have the, the power that they do because they recognize that populations often marginalized need to come in greater social and political and cultural visibility. The default position here is that we all need to see and to be seen. But at the same time, the imperative to be unseen can be just as strong and just as important in this age of hypervisibility, whether it's social media and the surveillance economy. We've kind of lost the importance of being under the radar, of being invisible. And I just wanted to bring that back into the conversation. And so as a writer, I started to think of other realms of human experience, other ways of being in which invisibility is not looked upon as a negative circumstance, but as a positive circumstance, is one that gave us a sense of power or autonomy. How would you describe the advantages of being invisible, of disappearing? I don't know that I would say there are advantages to being invisible. I think more what I'm saying is that there are times in human experience when being unseen gives us a sense of interiority and a sense of self, and that when we see ourselves as having to be visible all the time, then we lose that, right? A good place, or at least a good place for me to begin thinking about this, 
was in the realm of childhood, right? Because when we're kids, we learn so much about the invisible world. We learn about the evanescence of words through writing with invisible ink. And you learn how you can write a word and have it disappear. And I think there's a wonderful lesson in that. Children also find ways to disappear in imagined invisible places, right? Whether it's Alice down the rabbit hole or Eloise in the kind of hidden corridors of the Plaza Hotel, or whether it's just a kid hiding under the stairs or in the closet where they can imagine they're unseen. Children find themselves needing those places where they can just exist unto themselves unknown. For kids, the idea of invisibility is full of power and creativity and imagination. I'm interested in that idea of children need to sometimes disappear. I think that there's something about when a child is living with a parent, the parent perceives them in a certain way that's always going to be different from the way the child feels on the inside. There's a disparity between the way we see ourselves and the way we know that we're perceived by others. Sometimes we just need to be that person that we are alone, that we know ourselves to be. In Japan, there are different words for the private self versus the self that you are in the outside world, the public self. And I think there are all kinds of different forms of that. And to a large degree, children even are invisible sometimes. They can be in the room overhearing adults, and it's almost as if the adults think they're speaking a different language that the children can't understand. And children learn a whole lot from that. But there's also just a sense of like wanting to be your own wild self. Parents sometimes think a child going off alone and being invisible means they're getting into some kind of trouble. And they perceive that trouble as they're not being the person that I think they are. They might perhaps be developing some other side. And the thought is like, oh, that might be something unseemly. And there's some kind of a magical power about invisibility in childhood. Oh, no, I think what you're saying is absolutely true. When you're little, you exist in the family structure. And to realize that you can exist, you can be yourself, you can be this independent being outside of that structure is kind of a huge lesson. That's why kids search out places to go be by themselves. It's a way of understanding that you can be real without anyone else in the room, just all by yourself in the limbs of a tree or hiding under the stairs. You're who you are. And it's also a chance when you're unseen is a chance to try out other identities. You could do it in solitude or you could do it with your friends. But in order to find out who you really are, you have to try out a lot of things that may not end up being you. And sometimes they look clumsy and awkward and you don't want to have someone else around as a witness while you're trying on this other identity. I think that's absolutely true. You're posting on Instagram, you're on Facebook, you know, whatever it is you're doing to be visible. Maybe it's a little difficult, I think, to try on those different identities that you're talking about when it's all visible because you do fail, right? That's part of growing up. I mean, it's part of being an adult. You fail constantly. And so to have every single one of those failures kind of broadcast to the greater world can be diminishing, can be difficult. Right. And it's hard to be surprising if you have a public identity because people want you to conform to that public identity and to do something that's outside of the way your group thinks or the way that people expect you to think. As we know, in the modern world, people will come down on you really hard for saying something that's out of the group think. Oh, so true, so true. Do you ever wonder what it would be like to be a person for whom it's impossible ever to be invisible? I'm thinking of Kanye or Kim or Queen Elizabeth. Like what it would be like to have a life that's entirely lived in the public eye that way? Well, it's pretty hard for me to imagine. 
I would suspect that if you're living in the public eye and have that kind of constant celebrity visibility, you would have to be ever vigilant about what exactly you're exposing and what part you're keeping private. There was a psychologist I spoke to when I was researching my book named Alison Carper, and she was talking about how it's really important for people to be able to make the choice of what to tell, what to expose about themselves, and when to keep that to themselves. How do you situate yourself, Akiko? You're a writer, which by definition is to have a public life, and you put part of your interior onto a page, which is the very definition of making it visible. How do you manage that conundrum psychologically, and how do you manage it logistically? As a writer, you know, there's always a choice there. And of course, I'm teaching right now, we've been reading Annie Dillard's wonderful book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, and she uses the first person throughout the entire book. And one of the things we'll be talking about in the class is who she is as the author, right? What the I is when she says I, me, who is that person and how much of her do we know? So we're inside this wonderfully creative, inventive, imaginative mind. And we're seeing her think through these ideas about the natural world, about, uh, about the landscape, about God, about insects, about fish, about the moon, about everything. And so we, we know how she thinks, but we don't, um, we don't really know that much about, in fact, we don't know anything about her life in terms of her personal life, who she lives with, you know, how old she is, any of those things. And yet we learn so much about how her mind works. So I think there's also always this question of, you know, what part of your brain you're revealing. I've been thinking a lot about how when I became a mother, it seemed more advantageous to be more invisible and not to be as present in certain ways that I had been before that. Do you think there's something about invisibility where it's more advantageous at certain phases of life? I'm not sure there are times in your life when it's more important to be visible or invisible, but I do think that as we go through life, it's very easy to become more comfortable with being invisible or with engaging with the unseen world. I think even as adults, if we don't have invisible friends, which I think most of us probably don't, we still have conversations with people who may not happen to be in the room. If you're having, uh, you know, you have an argument in your mind with someone and you kind of play it out, even though you're in the room by yourself, or you've read a, a really extraordinary book, a piece of fiction maybe, and you find yourself talking the ideas of that story out with one of the characters in the book. So I think this idea of engaging with the invisible world is something that we all do. And I think, I want to say as women, but maybe it comes to men as well. I think as we age, as we grow older, we become less enchanted with being on view all the time. One of the books I read when I was thinking about invisibility, I reread Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. There's this wonderful passage in which Clarissa Dalloway is walking down a London street and she's looking to buy flowers for her dinner party. And she's kind of meditating on how older women are sometimes only known by their by their husband's names and no one's paying any attention to her. She's walking down the street. She says, I'm, un I'm unobserved. She feels invisible. She's talking about how she's become a more empathetic human being and how she finds herself connecting more to the people around her more intuitively and more intrinsically. She's, that section did not make a big impression on me when I read Mrs. Dalloway in my 20s, but decades later, it resonates. 
There is something that's kind of a superpower of the in, invisibility. You're talking about Mrs. Dalloway. It reminds me that about 20 years ago, I was in a writer's workshop taught by Annie Prue, the writer of The Shipping News. Right. And in that, she said, I found that being a postmenopausal woman is uh, incredibly powerful for a writer because you can be invisible. And she described writing the shipping news and going into these little diners in Nova Scotia and sitting at a table and overhearing the conversations that were going on around her. And so just gathering that vernacular, the way people talked, the things people spoke about, and that she really could travel unseen. I think you know, implicit in that is the idea. She wasn't an object anymore. She wasn't somebody catching the male eye. Um, or potentially being viewed as threatening in some way, felt like it was like traveling incognito or being very inconspicuous and far from thinking, oh, it's terrible that society treats an older woman that way. She's like, this is great. (laughs) When I was researching my book and, and to this day, whenever I see women who sort of just revel in that invisibility, it just always makes me so happy. It can be, as I said, a really positive place to be. The psychologist I mentioned, Alison Carper, spoke to me a little bit about, for women, the difference in being an object and a subject. And so, you know, if you go through life kind of objectifying yourself and and needing to be seen and needing affirmation through being seen, you're perhaps seeing yourself a little bit as an object. And she was talking about the difference between being an object and a subject. And when you no longer objectify yourself, then you're a subject in your life. I think maybe that's also what Annie Prue is talking about. Um, you and your book mention the very funny story that John Hodgman tells in This American Life. And when he would go around and ask people, would you rather have the superpower of being invisible, like the invisible man, or would you rather be able to fly like Superman? It was a really interesting segment because his conclusion was that whichever one it is you choose, we don't tend to use either of these for social good, right? We do them, and especially invisibility. We use invisibility to to get away with something, right? I mean, men sneak into the ladies' showers and women steal cashmere sweaters. We associate invisibility with transgression. But then also it seemed like people he spoke to, there was this kind of consensus that Flying was about being adventurous, um, taking risks, doing something with great bravado, whereas invisibility had more to do with hiding something, not wanting to be seen because you had done something wrong or you were going to do something wrong. It wasn't about privacy, but more about hiding something. You know, it kind of speaks to the time we live in where invisibility, it's so hard for us to see it as something positive. You know, we have to attach this kind of negative association with it. If you don't want to be seen, it's because there is something wrong, not because there is something right. That is strange, isn't it? And I think that that used to be a little bit flipped. That idea of somebody seeking the limelight was something that was frowned upon in a certain way. I feel like maybe when we were all a little more reclusive in our own communities, there was more fear of outsiders in the sense not to reveal who you are, not to reveal who our community is fully to others. Yeah, that secrecy was more highly prized. Yeah, my book is not about privacy. I think so much has been written about contemporary ideas of privacy and how they've kind of diminished, right, in recent years, how we seem to value it a little bit less. We don't 
recognize privacy as being kind of a necessary condition of a full life. Well, I want to get into it a little bit about this question about people feeling unseen who are on the margins of society in some way, and how that the in the book you had a point about the pleasure in being hidden and how that being hidden becomes a burden, however, if you're never looked for and you're never found. We have whole populations in this country that are not seen, that are not recognized, and that are not valued. Social invisibility is a terrible blight. I was speaking to a child psychologist. We were talking about those childhood games you play, right? Peekaboo and hide and seek. So there's this whole kind of exploration with, with peekaboo about little tiny children discovering ideas of visibility and invisibility. They can choose when to be seen and when not to be seen. And with hide and seek, the child is a little bit older and it's more of a cognitive exercise. And he was telling me that when you choose to hide yourself behind the apple tree or behind the hedge in the garden, and you hide there until someone comes to find you, but he said it could be practically a trauma in childhood development if you're hiding and then suddenly you don't know, but the game is called off and everyone goes inside and has cookies and you're still waiting. You've never been found. It's a terrible thing. Even now, just hearing that story about the hide and seek gives me a chill. Yeah, right? I think <laughs> I think maybe we all had that, oh gosh. that little experience, right? Of like, are they still looking for me? Right, right. right. I know you write a lot about nature. What did you find out from studying invisibility in nature that's different from what you found in the human world? I thought it was about color and pattern, you know, the Arctic foxes and the octopus, the color of the coral, that kind of thing, that it was a, a visual condition. And what I discovered is that there was much more involved. There was movement, for example. There are these fish called the pole fish, which are able to float both vertically and horizontally. So they're able to move vertically, imitating the seagrass in which they're floating in, which was revelatory to me, right? It's not just visual, but it's about movement. There are Panamanian brown butterflies that look like leaves falling through the air. That was interesting to me. And it's also a matter of silence, you know, different gradations of silence. You know, how does a cat move through the grass at night? So it's not just a question of visuals, but it's a question of movement and sound as well, which kind of broadened the idea of invisibility to me. I learned that there's a kind of bird that when there's a predator nearby, not only do the babies stop making noise, they stop having a scent. <gasps> They yeah. could cut off their sabelle in response to a threat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nature is amazing. <laughs> Nature is amazing. <laughs> I know you worked at Metropolis Magazine for a number of years, and uh, you're teaching now. Um, how, how would you describe your professional trajectory? I would describe it as being very logical, although it doesn't look very logical to most people, because when I began at Metropolis Magazine as a writer, I was writing about design. So I was writing about furniture and houses and buildings and cities. And now I'm writing about the natural world, 
But for me, writing about design was always about writing about a sense of fit. That's what made design interesting to me was whether, you know, how a spoon fit the hand or how a human body fits into a chair or how a house fits into the landscape. It was always about how disparate elements can fit together in a way that is sustaining and comfortable. So to go from writing about design to writing about rivers, to writing about invisibility. It all continues to be about how human beings can find a sense of fit with the natural world. Do you have a life philosophy or any basic tenets or a motto that you repeat to yourself to help you keep going? I have two quotes that I like a lot. One seems particular apt for this moment, and it's from Emerson. Life uncertain comes and goes. Just be prepared for uncertainty. That's what defines life, and that's just welcoming and acknowledging the uncertain is, is important to me, or trying to anyway. The other one is do the next most necessary thing, and that's a quote somebody once gave me from the psychologist and philosopher Carl Jung, and apparently a woman had written to him saying, you know, I, I don't know what to do with my life. What should I do? And his advice was do the next most necessary thing. And sometimes that means planting a garden or making a bowl of soup. And sometimes it means getting a new job or getting a divorce or making some massive change in your life. It can be tiny or huge, but just understand what the next step is. Yeah. I forgot to ask even, uh, how are you doing? We are recording this during the time of the global pandemic and uh, where are you sheltering in place and how are you? Thanks. We're fine. I live in the Hudson Valley in a very rural area, so it's been very easy for us to shelter in place. We're able to get out to the garden. We're able to take walks when we go much farther. We wear masks and gloves, obviously, but for us, it's been nothing but an inconvenience, whereas for so many people who are really suffering, it's something very different. Um, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. If there was one thing about life here on Earth that you wish people would pay a bit more attention to that wasn't so invisible, what would it be? Oh, gosh. One of the things I think that's really struck me in the last few weeks is how the natural world gets by just fine without us. When we do stop, when we do shelter in place, when we set back, when businesses are closed down, Look at what the natural world does, right? The coyotes and the raccoons go back into the cities. The skies over Manhattan and Paris and New Delhi are azure blue. The natural world will survive us. Akiko, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Jill. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I've really enjoyed it. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Akiko Bush inspires you to understand the power of sometimes going unseen, and perhaps to experiment with that in different ways. One of the things that sticks with me about this conversation is her point about the inverse, how important it is for us to see others and for no one ever to suffer the grief of going forever unfound. In the next episode, we'll be talking about climate change, and the dilemma each of us share in deciding whether what we're doing to combat climate change as an individual or as a household is enough. We're all busy living life and it's growing even more complicated to do that with the coronavirus, but how can we know where the sweet spot is where one knows that one is doing the proper amount to slow down climate change and then to free up that mental space to do all the other things necessary in life and the things we love to do. 
And on another note, remember that we at The Shape of the World are constantly updating information on our website about how to go outdoors during the pandemic. We have a great downloadable and shareable PDF on that. More and more it's becoming clear that the outdoors is a much lower risk place to be than indoors. But of course, we still want you to behave responsibly when you're outside, and I know you want that too. So we have the latest guidelines that are based on the latest science. In the meantime, do go outdoors and maybe spend a little extra time really seeing someone important in your life who tends to be one of those folks who's a bit overlooked. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people in the world that we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. The Shape of the World is a completely carbon neutral endeavor thanks to the reductions we made and from a carbon offset purchased from Tradewater. If you're interested in eliminating your carbon footprint, go to the website tradewater.us. You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find out more about Akiko Bush's wonderful work and the books she's written and a drawing of Akiko by the artist Nicole Vigil. The Shape of the World's producer is Ralph Loza. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Akiko Bush. <laughs>